following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to Isaiah 43, please. We continue our reading series in Isaiah, Isaiah 43. Please follow along as I read. This from, as, as normal in my practice, the New King James Version, but if you have another version, you'll be able to follow along satisfactorily well, I trust. 43, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or... Let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings." nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, 
nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Isaiah 43. Okay. Thank the Lord for that reading of his word. We're in the last section of the book of Isaiah, the second section. Looking forward to moving on through that and seeing some wonderful things, more wonderful things there. But for tonight, we're going to be back in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. If uh, you would like to turn there, Matthew in, in chapter number 5. Trust this will be an encouragement to you this evening uh, and a challenge. It does correlate nicely with what our brother spoke on this morning. Um, and uh, All right. Our sister is okay. Had a little trip there all as well. Okay. Um, so it was very nice this morning what our brother uh, spoke on, and uh, I'll see if I can uh, get you out of here at a decent hour here. I know you were re- retained this morning, and it was very okay. It was very nice, but uh, now you folks will be thankful when I come back and only preach till 1210. So see, see, it's all part of the plan. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, our brother said there's nothing, there was nothing better to do, and I'll tell you, that is true. Yeah, what else were you going to do uh, that was better and uh, more profitable? So Matthew chapter 5, we uh, have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I will be, uh, pray for me, I'll be uh, tasked with preaching at the uh, seminary chapel, thank you, on Wednesday, I actually have a couple of trips down that way this week. And uh, I'm going to try to preach on the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 to the folks there. So uh, that I feel like it's a challenging passage to preach, but I want to give it a try. So I have rewritten my sermons for those 12 verses and I'm going to enjoy delivering those again. We addressed a little bit in, of detail about the matter of how the Sermon on the Mount is applicable in those verses uh, to the Christian believer, some some doubt whether it's applicable at all. They say, well, or maybe there's some minor application, but it's really for another age, it's for another time, it doesn't really fit in the church, it's not the church, it's the kingdom or it's the law, and uh, there's, uh, you know, factors there that we do need to take into account, but as I said uh, before, I believe it is this message fully applicable to us today. Certainly, its directives and the culture that it reflects will not be fully operational until the kingdom of Christ on earth. That seems to be clear to me. But as citizens of that future kingdom, we are obligated to follow the principles of the sermon in our present world. In fact, I would be hard-pressed to find any verses in this section that are not somehow fairly closely applicable to us. Could you? Could you find, I mean, look at what we've looked at here, what we're going to see in the upcoming sections about the 
intention of the law, uh, about how to pray, uh, about not judging, about asking, seeking, knocking, about the two ways of of life, uh, about uh, doing our good works that we wouldn't be, uh, you know, haughty before men or arrogant about those things. There's all kinds of things that just deal with the very innermost part of our religious life. We've come now to 5.13 in our study, and let me read from 13 down to 20. We'll see how far we get this evening on this. 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Salt, light, and the law. That's our message tonight. First of all, salt, verse 13. Now, I want to remember if we go back to the core message that Jesus is preaching and John the Baptist before him, that that message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That has to color our understanding of what we're talking about here. We can't just leave chapter 4, you know, kind of behind and then move forward into chapter 5 ignoring what came before. Jesus' message, his essential message is this, 417. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist before him said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 3, verse number 2. Those are, the, those are the summary statements of what they're saying. If you want to boil all this stuff down, repent of sin. Repent. Why? Because the king is on the scene. The king is about to, to establish his kingdom. And although we can't say with what immediacy the Lord will do that in our day, He will do it, and it is coming still. So we can say, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom is coming sometime, maybe very soon, he will be on the scene. So our message is essentially the same as this message. And of course, we understand that when you say repent, that implies that you're believing in the God who gives you that message of repentance, Very important for us to tie those two notions together, repentance and faith in God. But they don't both have to be said in the same context for us to understand that they are conceptually linked and together because you're not going to repent if you don't believe God. If you don't believe in God, you're going to say, phooey on that, 
It has nothing to do with me. I'm not going to repent of my sin. I'm not going to turn from sin because I don't care. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm my own boss. You know, some man up in the sky is not my boss. By so saying, you know, they blaspheme God. Some man in the sky. There's no, there's no man upstairs. There's God everywhere, but there's no man upstairs. So we can be patient with people, of course, who talk about, you know, the, the man in heaven. There actually is a man in heaven, the man Christ Jesus, but they don't think of him that way, do they? Yeah, they kind of a, a limited uh, view of, of, of God in a sense. Anyway, we be patient with people who have those uh, kind of uh, short, fallen uh, ideas of who God is, but still, we must help them. Anyways, belief and repentance come together, and that's what colors all of what we're looking at here. Repentant people look like, verse 3 says, they're poor in spirit. Repentant people are those who mourn over sin. Repentant people are those who are meek. Repenters are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And yes, they are persecuted sometimes for righteousness' sake. They're blessed as a result of those things. And in fact, are blessed even just in the fact that they are repenters and that God has given them that gift. Now, Jesus says these repentant ones are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Jesus refers to them, to these ones, to you, if you're a believer in Christ, and I'm looking around and seeing many of you who are believers in Christ. You are like salt. This is like a miniature parable, if you think of it. A miniature parable, uh, a metaphor for what a believer is like. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, an old salt. What's an old salt, brother? He's, yeah, an old salt is an experienced sailor, one who sailed the seven seas, right? Yes, an, uh, an old Navy man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a sailor who has a lot of experience on the sea. That's an old salt, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I'm just, I picked that up as a kind of humorous way to help illustrate the idea of salt by contrast. The metaphor here is of mineral salt the mineral of salt. And we could go on and talk about the mineral of salt just in uh, you know, interesting terms. I'll let you, you know, look up uh, you know, on your favorite video channel on the, on the computer about salt and look at the deep salt mines and some of the accidents that have happened because of salt mines and in Detroit sitting on top of a salt mine and, and all those very interesting things. Salt is so important in human commerce and human life. Salt is in everything almost. And today we want less of it because we think it causes us you know, hypertension and all of that. But you've got to have some salt. No salt means no life, doesn't it? You've got to have some. Salt flavors and it preserves, doesn't it? Those are two major functions of what salt is. And I was interested in reading a study Bible this week that says, well, most certainly Jesus is talking about the preservative quality of salt. But I want you to look at the verse carefully. Does he talk about the preservative quality of salt? No, he doesn't. He actually says, if the salt loses its flavor, he's talking about, he's emphasizing the flavor aspect of salt. Now, they're not 
disconnected the two ideas of flavor and preservative. I'll try to show you why that is. But it's, it's not the preservative effect that's the main basis for this metaphor or miniature parable. It's the flavor. Indeed, the people of God do preserve good and the cause of God on the earth, but the metaphor focuses on flavoring that followers of Christ do flavor the world and help it to be a better place, even if we're not the majority. How much salt does it take on your meat in order for you to taste it? It doesn't take, if, I mean, if you have a slab of steak, it doesn't take that much salt to make a taste difference. In fact, that would be too much salt if you had one-to-one ratio. It's a very, <laughs> you can taste it, right? That's like gargling salt water. Ooh, you know, that's, so, that's very salty. So it's a little bit of salt can go a long way. And we, although few, a remnant, not many, many are called, but few are chosen, can salt the earth, can salt the world and make it a better place even though we are a minority of the world's population. We show the world what it's like to be godly, what it's like to be a repentant person. Our flavor is different than the world's flavor, isn't it? Our aroma to change metaphors, you know, of course, to some were the aroma of death and to others the aroma of life. They smell life. People smell life when they, when they smell a Christian. In other words, metaphorically thinking of the, the, the effect of the Christian, but others may smell death. But anyways, the idea of salt is that of a, a flavoring agent. Something It has to be different than the thing that it flavors to make a difference in the flavor now, doesn't it? But the Lord says, salt, you, you know, you're salt, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You know, maybe you've tried different kinds of salt. You have your regular iodized table salt, which, by the way, is a great invention for humanity, that iodized salt. The excellent you know, thing that it does to help our health. But you, maybe you've tried the uh, Himalayan salt. You tried that before, that pink stuff. Or Celtic sea salt is more of a grayish white. I like to use that. Very tasty. Uh, or um, perhaps just regular sea salt that you get at the store. You know, why does it taste different? Well, it has different minerals in it, doesn't it? It's not just pure you know, NaCl or that sort of thing. It's just... It's, it's flavored with other things, other minerals. And so each one has a little bit of a different flavor, a different taste based on the minerals that they contain. If, but if the salt has more impurities in it than salt, like if it's NaCl, I guess that's the... How's my chemistry? Is that right? Yeah, good. I got it. Uh, you know, if it's salt, but it's less than 50% pure salt and the rest is all these minerals and things, it's going to taste a lot different than regular salt. Yeah, it's going to, have a, it's going to lose its flavor. And, and eventually, if it's contaminated by too much of other things, it's going to be good for nothing. You know, if, if you have no good salt in your pantry, you can't like, make bad salt taste good or you know, remix it or something and fix it so that it's better again. Uh, you can't revive it. Maybe it became contaminated by some other substance. And then, if I asked you the question, do you want some salt on your food? You would say, no, no thanks, I'll have it plain. Because I'd rather have the taste of the meat itself than the contaminated salt on 
the meat. And maybe it's even harmful. Or maybe it is just plain nasty and useless. And what the Lord says in that case is it becomes useless for for nothing else but ground cover. You just scatter it on the walking pathway to keep the dandelions and other weeds down because you can, you know, even if there's some salt in it or other minerals that might kill those plants, uh, it, it has that only that the only effectiveness that it has. It's losing its effectiveness as a preservative, and the taste of it will tell you that fact. So if you are a if you are a impure salt then you won't have the preservative effect anyways that salt has. So there's the connection between preservation and flavor. And you'd probably be able to taste that if you tested the salt, you know. Oh, that's not good. That's not going to preserve my meat for a very long time or whatever it is. So what is the meaning of this? Salt. Salt, pure salt is like a uh, pure life. Pure salt is like an uncontaminated life. It's uncontaminated by the prevailing sins, the minerals of this world, or any sins for that matter. And that pure life can make a change in the world. Obviously, no salt is 100% pure. I mean, a scientist could probably, with his microscope, find you know one particle of impurity in there. And no life, no human life, no Christian life is 100% pure from sin. But salt is different than non-salt, isn't it? You are salt. You're not supposed to be sugar. You're salt. You're not supposed to be other things. You're salt. You're not supposed to be like the world. The person who is contaminated and full of sin is of no use to the kingdom of God. He is left on the path, trodden underfoot, so to speak, and does not help the cause move forward. He is a, a, a weight or, or you know, a dead weight. Salt that has lost its flavor is like believers who have lost their distinctiveness from the world, who have lost their holiness, who have lost their effectiveness, and who appear little different than the world around them. Our brother Scott was speaking of that this morning, wasn't he? You know, certain, certain branches of Christendom are so like the world that they are the world. They're just, you know, one branch of a multi-branch tree called the world, but they're not the branch of Christianity. They're not salt. And so the Lord is calling His repentant people to be people who are the salt of the earth. They flavor the earth. They're pure. They, uh, they, they love God and they live for Him and look, they look a whole lot different. Than the world. So let me ask you this question. Take a minute to taste your own life. You know how when you're a kid sometimes you you sweat and and, and you lick your sweat and see how it tasted? Look, you've all done it. Tell, don't tell me you didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell me that you didn't ever do that before. Yeah, and, uh, and your pets like to lick your skin because there's salt there, right? Or there's some kind of, you know, minerals or whatever. But taste your own life. Think about how you taste to God and the world. 
Are you salty or are you pretty bland? Are you a pure believer or are you contaminated by the things of the world? How do you taste yourself? That's salt. You're the salt of the earth. But if you lose your flavor, then it's not good for much, is it? That's salt and uh, our, our profession of faith. It's like somebody who you know, professes faith and somebody said this, if your profession of faith makes no difference to you, it makes no difference to God either. You're not telling the truth. You can talk all you want, you know, but as another one of my mentors said years ago, he said, you, you know, listen to somebody's profession, but watch, you know, their mouth, watch their, listen to their profession, but watch their feet. If their direction is not the same as their profession, then you've got a serious problem. So, salt or no salt? Okay. The second metaphor here is light. And this is given in more lengthy terms in verses 14 through 16, so three verses. And this is a metaphor for the repentant believer as light. Light refers to what? Light. Have a lot of light in here, but light is used as a metaphor for holiness. It's used as a metaphor for godliness. What does 1 John 1 5 say? Do you remember? Just give me the three words that connect to this idea God is light. God is light. Now, the verse itself is much longer than that. It says in verse 5, This is the message. And, and actually, I was reviewing this, and it's interesting. Some translations say this is the gospel message. The word gospel isn't in there. Is it, Jansen? You're, you're in 1 John in Greek. You, you remember? No, you have to double-check that for me. But there's, I don't think there's the word euangelion there. But the interpreters and some transla- uh, translators have put that. This is the gospel message, which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that is, walk in in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, in holiness, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. We walk in the light. We don't live in the night, the darkness. Those that sin, sin in the night in the darkness. And that actually, you know, it's speaking metaphorically, but it really does happen. You know, nothing good happens after midnight, some old timers used to say. Yeah, it's dark. (laughs) Oh, nothing good after dark. I see what you mean. Yeah. Maybe the reason why your parents told you when the streetlights come on, come home, right? Yeah. Don't be messing around in the dark. Believers are light, godliness, holiness. Uh, Listen, if we don't shine light in this world, where is it going to come from? There is no light apart from believers preaching this word, living this word, proclaiming it to others, having it in their lives. I say, you know, if it's not us, you you can't say, where are all the believers that are 
they're supposed to be light in the world, and, and you know, we're sitting on the sidelines, you know, just watching for them. Somebody's got to stand up and stand for the truth. No, you do. We do. We don't have the luxury of sitting around and saying somebody else will do it. There's so few of somebody else's and so few of the us's in, Christ, in, in true Christianity, we all have to stand up and be light and counted as part of the light. Presently, in many countries, the individual and corporate light of the church is being shut down by persecution. We mentioned one country already this evening. Very sad circumstances there. And those people, although the persecution is pressing on them, God sometimes designs that so that the pressure will cause it to squirt out in other directions, and he will have his way with uh, the people of that country. But, you know, certain geopolitical circumstances actually cause more or less, in some cases, persecution to Christians. Just If you have your eyes open to this, you can see the patterns. You can see the patterns. Strong, righteous government, Christians have uh, prosperity. Not monetary prosperity, but freedom, but relief from persecution. Wicked governments... In, in our country and elsewhere, Christians have persecution and Christians are killed. Christians are beheaded. Christians are jailed because no one takes a strong stand for righteousness. Well, uh, I was just, you know, in, in my notes here, gave a contemporary example that I was thinking of at the time that I wrote these a couple of weeks ago, Grace Life Church, Edmonton, Canada, uh, Alberta, Canada. Remember the pastor that was thrown in jail for 35 days? Uh, the, the church was locked shut and surrounded by chain-link fence earlier this month to keep it closed. One prominent conservative asked all of our new evangelical brethren, now do you believe it's persecution? Because all they said before was, well, they're not obeying the health mandates. They have to obey the health mandates. That's not how I read our Constitution here. And it's not how I read our Bible. Our Bible doesn't say if there's a sickness going around, you're not to meet for a year. No, it doesn't say that. Paul tells us to remember the chains of those who are chained, who are in the body also. Thankfully, however, not even death itself can destroy the church. Remember what I preached in Matthew 16, gates of Hades? Death itself cannot prevail against the church. The people are redeemed by the blood of Christ, cannot be conquered by death. In fact, in times like these, the light of the church may be even more noticeable to people because it gains some level of prominence and notoriety and noticeability. The light shining from God through his people is not designed by God to be hidden. It says it cannot be hidden. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. What an awful thing in World War II to be a city on a hill, a city prominent with all your lights. You know, what did they do in cities like Ann Arbor during World War II? Do you know? Shut the lights, blackouts, and not only to save electricity, but to make it less of a target for whoever might come. Imagine, we didn't even have a problem here with that. Imagine if you were in London 
with the German bombing there in the city, night after night, bomb shelters and sirens and destruction and death. And yeah, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's very tough to hide a city on a hill. And you don't want to anyway in peaceful times. Nor do you light a lamp and put it under a basket. You know, as you get older and your eyes change, you need more light, right? You experience that? And what seemed to be fine before, or somebody, some younger person says, there's plenty of light there. And you're like, <laughs> Guy like Daniel there, he can see in the pitch black. He's got night vision, you know. Some of us, not so much. <laughs> yeah, well... Anyways, you don't, you don't put a nice bright light bulb and then shroud it with some humongous lampshade that bro- blocks all the light from getting out. You want the light to come out. That's what it's designed to do. Uh, you, know, you, you, uh, you don't want to have a lighthouse that has shutters on the, on the light that's up there, maybe rotating or maybe it's constant light. You want it to shine out. You don't cover it over not meant to be hidden or put under an upside-down basket. Now, the, the light does tend to become a little hidden sometimes when it's, there's persecution, but it even has to shine out somehow in the prisons or wherever. Apostle Paul demonstrated that, didn't he? Midnight, singing, praises to God, even in the prison. Light is godliness. Light is godliness. Now, Jesus indicates in verse 16 that our light is like good works. See verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So I take it light and good works are synonymous, more or less. So our light is supposed to be seen, our good works are supposed to be seen by men. Now here's the critical difference that you've got to grasp. Our works are not done to be seen by men. We don't do them to be seen by men but they are seen nonetheless. The good works of some people are clearly evident, 1 Timothy 5.25, and those that are not will become manifest later on. The difference between what Jesus is teaching here and chapter 6, verse 1, is important to grasp. That's what I'm trying to get us to see. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. What is it that's being seen here or desired to be seen? Me. I did the good works. Aren't I such a good person? So the difference is that in Matthew 5, it's the works that are done not to be seen by men, but they are seen and they have a good impact. Matthew 6, the Lord is prohibiting people to do works to puff themselves up. The works are done to glorify self in Matthew 6. In Matthew 5, the works are done to do what? Glorify your Father in heaven, it tells us. Isn't it clear? Glorify the Father or glorify self. So you can do one and the same good work to either glorify yourself or to glorify the Father. Only you can know in God if your attitude is right before him. Watch that. So take another minute now. We, we, you tasted yourself before, okay? 
about your saltiness, but take another minute to get out the digital light meter and see how many lumens are shining out from your life. Are you familiar with lumens? The measure of brightness of light. Uh, you know, a, a standard incandescent 60-watt light bulb, about 800 lumens. That gives you an idea of how bright it is. A very a quite powerful fluorescent four-foot tube, 2,500 lumens of light. Different color, but that brightness. These lights above my head here, we have six of them, LEDs, 17,055 lumens, according to the manufacturer's specification. If your own spiritual light is a bit dull and people around you can't see too well, upgrade the bulb, turn up the power. Give up control of the light switch. Let God have the switch. For those of you uh, electrical engineers out there, if you have a power source and a switch and a light bulb goes back around, feeds to the other side of the power source, you can have a nice bright light. What happens if I stick a resistor in the pathway? The lumens go down. Don't have any resistors in your life sin, impurities, and that sort of thing. Take those out. Turn up the wick. Turn on the switch. Let God do in your life what will brighten the bulb. So what's the idea so far? Jesus commands us that we shine as light before people. We shine as lights in the world. If Christians do not do that, no one will. And if we're not real salt... The world is not going to be a very different place. We don't want to be useless. Our flavor, our preservative power, our good works to be, are to be clear and compelling so that people would turn to glorifying the God of heaven. We turn back in 1 Peter chapter 2 where we were this morning and I was very interested that he cited Matthew 5.16 at this point because I knew tonight from my preparation, I was going to be citing 1 Peter 2.12 from Matthew 5.16. Uh, 1 Peter 2.12 says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Yes, the gospel must be preached in words, but it must be lived out in life so that the words have an oomph to them, a reality, not a hypocrisy. To them. Now, it may seem hard to believe that outsiders would glorify God somehow, but that's only because of our, I think, our lack of faith, our unbelief. Do you believe God still has people in this world that He's going to save? Well, there's only one kind of person that can be saved that's an unsaved person. <laughs> that's a person who who doesn't know the Lord. That's a person who's living in darkness. Okay? Captain Obvious here, right? <laughs> uh, you know, God will save people, and He will use you to do it. He will use your life, perhaps, as a testimony so that your words will have an impact. God may use your light, your salt, 
as an intermediate means to draw people to himself. We know salvation is of the Lord, but how does he do that? He, he does it through the witness of the gospel. He does it through the word of God. He does it through other believers, through you. And though some may not become believers even, they may still recognize the hand of God in the believer's life or in the church. I hope they will. You know, I don't look forward to having conflict with the community or the government or the authorities or anything like that, but I hope that if we do have that, that the community at large, maybe not those individuals that are doing the persecuting, but the community at large, when they observe the persecutors and they observe the church, they would be able to say, huh, I can see who's behaving themselves more kindly, more loving, more straightforwardly, more truthfully, more honestly. And that could be a witness for God. And so even if some do not come to know the Lord, hopefully they will see that the church is upright and right before God in some way that they are able to see. We're going to hold off there because there's a whole different section starting with verse uh, 17, and we'll pick that up the next time. But I encourage you, think about your light meter, think about your salt meter and see how you're doing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you for allowing us to have these basic truths and to think on them. And I pray that those listening here and online will have a profitable time thinking, is my life any different than the flavor or the darkness of the world around me? And Lord, may you use this to challenge us to greater light, to more pure salt. In Jesus' name, amen.